0: and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 93, Fate of the Revolution. With the fall of the Siberian Whites, the biggest front of the war was won by the Bolsheviks. But Admiral Kolchak and the Siberians weren't the only attempt during 1919 at storming the Red Keep. In fact, what might have been the most dangerous attempt at the Bolshevik heartlands was carried out by General Danikin from Russia's south. The Whites down there hadn't had an easy go of it from the start, from the winter campaigns to bickering with local Cossacks, it seemed as though there was always something to distract them from getting on with the business of actually knocking the Bolsheviks out of Russia. But finally, there came a time when Denikin felt he was secure enough to get on with the attack. Summer 1919 seemed to be the opportune moment. The Entente might have aborted their half-baked interventions into Russia's south, but at least he wouldn't be lulled into believing they'd be of direct help. The Entente would, though, be a vital source of equipment. And whereas before he might have had some trouble with his Cossack allies, the aid of Entente weapons and supplies ran through him personally. During 1919, that amounted to 200,000 rifles, 6,200 machine guns, a half billion rounds of ammo, 1,100 artillery pieces, and 2 million shells. On top of all that were hundreds of thousands of coats and boots to actually clothe his growing forces and the cherry on top was more cutting-edge stuff like 60 tanks and 150 aircraft. And to his credit, he was a lot better at making sure the equipment actually got to his troops, and if anybody wanted a share of it, they'd have to go through him. This made the Cossacks far more compliant, and this was only helped by the overly independent Krasnov being replaced as adamant of the Don Cossacks, being succeeded by the much more cooperative General Bogevsky. And hey, by late May, Kolchak was still on the western side of the Urals, the right side for them. His offensive had well and truly been repulsed, and he was on the road to ruin, but that wasn't a sure thing in that moment, and the Admiral was also drawing the majority of the Red Army towards him. The situation appeared ripe for Tunikin. By May 1919, there were a quarter million Red Army troops on the southern front, but they were widely dispersed in garrisons and non-combat duties the actual frontline strength was closer to 80,000. Against this, Danikin had only 50,000 men, but they were, for the moment, much better supplied and motivated. Plus, the command of the local Red Army troops was still divided between the Ukrainian and Southern Front Commands, which were not coordinating between each other. This proved disastrous in mid-May 1919, amid continued battles over the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. A local white commander, General Maimevsky, had been confounding the Red Army's attempts at invading the area over the winter and spring. With General Sidorin's Army of the Dawn and Vrongel's Army of the Caucasus further east in position to launch a general offensive, Danikin's great roll of the dice was made. Maymavsky and the Egypt Volunteer Army attacked the weakened Red troops in the Donbass region using the new British tanks, which was a real oh-crap moment for the Reds, as they didn't have a whole lot to take them out. First, the Ukrainian front had to fall back, opting to go northwest towards Kharkov, which opened the southern front to attack from its newly exposed flank. The tanks hit once again, and the southern front troops withdrew to the northeast, which left the plains directly north wide open. The split meant that neither force could support each other, and the Ukrainian front especially suffered in isolation. Many of their troops had been raised locally, and some were even barely integrated partisan units. Remember how I talked about the pains Trotsky took to get the Red Army in shape? Well, the reform still hadn't reached that sector of the war. Still, Trotsky, for his part, was still optimistic, going so far as to say on June 4th that Kharkov was safe and sound. Naturally, three weeks later, on June 27th, the Whites took the city. By that time, too, white cavalry, which is to say Cossacks, were fanning across the open plains of Ukraine and had reached the Dnepr Bend, the section of the Dnepr River running through central Ukraine that changes course from southeast to southwest. The white troops that had retreated from the Crimea under the guns of Entente warships made their return, crossing the Straits of Kerch and reclaiming the peninsula from the Reds. With their armies focused north of Kharkov and already crumbling, the Reds had precious little to actually defend central Ukraine. As it turned out, the only thing that kept the Whites even partially at bay were the vast distances involved and the inability to properly occupy such large gains. Adjacent to Mamevsky's volunteer army was Sidorin's Army of the Dawn, the reorganized and rejuvenated Cossack force boosted by reinforcements from the North Caucasus region. They began their own march northwards and, for their part, had the additional objective of meeting up with an uprising of their fellow Cossacks. During the attempts to take Tsaritsyn, the Don Cossack homelands along their namesake river had been invaded. Much of the host's land had fallen to the invasion, and the Bolsheviks had wasted little time in launching a terror campaign. Suspected combatants or white collaborators were rounded up, and the Cossack communities were faced with requisitions of food, horses, and really whatever caught the eye of the Reds. The worst excess was a mass execution of 8,000 Cossacks. This sparked an uprising, and before long, 30,000 Cossacks had taken up arms in what became known as the Vyoshinskaya Uprising. This raged for three months from March 1919 and completely undermined the Red Army's attempted holding the central part of the front. With the western sector already giving way north of the Donbass, so did the center in June. Sidorin's troops quickly linked up with the Cossack partisans, and together they marched north, taking Luhansk on June 1st and beginning to advance towards Voronezh. And this leaves only General Wrangel's army the Caucasus left to be accounted for. This formation was kind of a motley one, composed of Kuban Cossacks, freshly raised white units, and Muslim volunteers from the North Caucasus. But Vrongel was the most capable of Denikin's commanders, even though the two did not get along well. His objective was to take what had been dubbed the Red Verdun, Tsaritsyn. He had made his first attempt on the city in early May, but couldn't overcome the Red troops that had become deeply entrenched in the area around the city. The road to Tsaritsyn was a hard one, and the railway leading to it wasn't fully repaired at the time, so he lacked the heavy weaponry he was going to need. Frongel nagged and needled Denikhin about proper support, pointing out how bravery had not taken the city the last several times they had tried to storm it, and it wasn't going to happen this time either. He tried again on June 2nd and was repulsed again with heavy casualties. Finally, on June 16th, the railroad link was properly repaired and the cavalry arrived and by cavalry, I mean tanks and airplanes. On the 27th, Vrongel began his assault with his new heavy weapons, which the Red Army once again lacked the means to properly resist. For three days, the Red Entrenchments were stormed, and by the 30th, the Whites finally carried the day. 40,000 prisoners were taken, along with 2,000 railway cars loaded with war material. Danekin himself arrived on the scene, and the White Army held a triumphal march on the city that had resisted them for the past year. The captured supplies were great, but the city proved to be a hollow shell. Typhus had swept through the population and it presented a grim and run-down picture. Still, the whites had overcome their red whale and they could finally move on. It was at Tsaritsyn, though, that Denikin would repeat the fatal mistake that had doomed Kolchak. On July 3rd, he issued the Moscow Directive, which, appropriately enough, ordered an attack on Moscow from three separate directions. Wrangel would continue on to Saratov and take the Volga route, Sidorin would take Voronezh, then attack Moscow via Ryazan. Maimevsky would take Kharkov and follow the Kursk-Oral-Tula route. Earlier, I said the White Force started the campaign with 50,000 men. And even if you take into account add-ons after the successful first phase of this summer campaign, that was barely enough men to support one thrust, much less three in one go. And by this point, Kolchak was well and truly beaten, and the Red Army shuffled reinforcements southwards. These were formations that had stood the test of battle and had better officers than the ones Danikin's guys had faced earlier. Nevertheless, the second phase of the offensive went ahead as planned, with the three separate attacks. There was an unplanned-for early success, as one General Momontov and his band of Cossacks broke ranks with the Don Army and surged north on horseback starting August 10th, taking advantage of a gap in the red lines that had still not been filled. Being purely on horseback, they proved too quick for the Reds to catch, and by August 18th, they had taken the city of Tambov, which amusingly enough was actually where Trotsky was staying in his armored train, trying to reorganize the front the Cossacks had just ridden through. The war commissar had to ride off as fast as his locomotive would allow to avoid capture by the horsemen, and with their defenses outflanked, Boronezh was abandoned by the Reds soon after. Amontov's troops looted the city and fanned out northwards, wrecking Bolshevik communications all along the south and leaving local defenses isolated from each other. The left flank of the white advance progressed well also. Ukraine was virtually undefended, and both Odessa and Kiev fell on August 23rd. Trotsky had arrived on the scene after fleeing west from Tambov, but there was hardly anything available to organize into a defense, and there were threats of Polish and Romanian attacks from further to the west as well. Ultimately, it was decided simply to abandon the whole country and send troops where they could actually make a difference. An upshot for the Bolsheviks was that the Ukraine invasion tied down over 10,000 white troops. They weren't the best of the best, but they were directed away from the northern advance, which was the one that actually mattered. Moscow was north, not west. On the eastern flank, Wrangel came within 60 miles of Saratov by the start of August. He had linked up with the Orenburg Cossacks, who had returned to the White Fold after deserting Kolchak earlier in the year, and felt the way open to go further, but already he was at the limit of his supply lines. There was no railroad running along the Volga, and the Bolsheviks had successfully sent all the river barges northwards and out of White Hands. After only a month of advancing, Wrangel had to halt 100 miles north of Tsaritsyn, not even reaching his first objective of Saratov. By this time, there was a new Red Commander in town as well. As I mentioned last week, General Sergei Kamenev took overall command of the Red Army in early July, and after seeing off Kolchak, he turned his attentions south. He launched a two-pronged attack, with the first one in the east on August 15th catching Vrongel in the classic trap of having no supplies on hand. Vrongel was forced to retreat all the way back to Tsaritsyn and only save the situation by bringing the tanks and planes to bear again. The other attack in the west tried to drive between Maimewski and Sidorin's armies. This was sort of successful as the Red Advance covered 100 miles in 10 days at the end of August, but it was against white armies that weren't at the end of their tether. The bypassed whites simply moved to attack their rear areas, and the attacking Reds only just barely escaped being trapped. The Red Army still had some learning to do about judging when to make a lunge. They were also helped by the fact that the volunteer army was being harassed by attacks from other red forces in the area and was also trying to prepare for its attack on Moscow. These counterattacks also set the stage for another tiff among the Bolshevik leadership as Trotsky and Kamenev got into it over where to advance. Kamenev wanted to retake Tsaritsyn and head west from there, building on his own success. Trotsky wanted to shift troops to the west to attack through the Donbass, avoiding most of the open steps on the way to Dunikin's home bases. Lenin sided with Kamenev again, probably because the general had made good on his promise to hunt Kolchak. Also, the plan offered the quickest prospect to destroying Danikin, which Lenin was probably thinking about more than anything. Too bad for them, Vrongl managed to hold Tsaritsyn and pin down Kamenev. This meant the cream of the red troops were bogged down in the east, just as the Volunteer Army was going to make its attack in the west. Launching off from Kharkov, Maymevsky's troops were spearheaded by the oldest formations in the Volunteer Army, whose leaders had endured the winter marches in early 1918. Now they struck out towards Kursk, starting in mid-September. Their eastern flank was secured by the Army of the Dawn, which had taken over from Momontov's raiding party, which itself had mostly disbanded after becoming overburdened with loot. The Volunteer Army crushed the Red Army units ahead of it, which among them was a young commissar by the name of Nikita Khrushchev. By October 14th, Oral was taken, which was extremely bad. And I know I like to rattle off these progress reports, but this wasn't just a loss of a population center. The next big city down the line was Tula, just 120 miles away, which contained the pride of the Russian armament industry, the loss of which could actually be fatal. And another 120 miles was Moscow, which would be fatal. This advance was alarming as all hell, but Trotsky had prepared something special for them. The most forward white unit was the Kornilov Division, so named for the dead leader of the volunteer army. It was isolated, and Trotsky deployed the Latvian riflemen to cut them off from the west. The cracked Baltic troops did just that, and the check on the volunteer army's western flank allowed the effective deployment of the next surprise, the Red Cavalry. For the past couple months, Trotsky had been very, very annoyed with the progress of the Cossack cavalrymen, which I imagine that little incident around Tambov had a little something to do with that. The Bolsheviks recruited from what Cossacks they could rally to their cause, and what workers they could teach to ride a horse. Calvary hadn't really been the Bolsheviks' thing, seeing equestratarianism as kind of a bourgeois pursuit, but results were results. They organized the 1st Cavalry Corps, later the 1st Calvary Army, under the command of Semyon Budyani. He had been a cavalryman in the czarist days, but came from peasant stock and so was considered reliable. Plus he had a gigantic handlebar mustache that radiated confidence. Be sure and remember him. Like Voroshilov, he's going to be one of Stalin's military cronies. This connection was made when Stalin was attached as commissar to Budyani's cavalry army, and so the latter's success became the former success. As another tidbit, among the cavalrymen was a young up-and-comer named Grigory Zhukov. His career would really get going from here. The Red Cavalry struck on the Volunteers' eastern flank, towards Voronezh. The Don Army had drifted more towards the Volga and were out of position to counter this at the time. Now, Maia whole army was threatened with being cut off. Bojani entered Voronezh on October 24th, and the Whites hit the panic button, sending their own Cossack cavalry to meet the Reds head-on. What transpired was a battle with some actual drama to it. The two formations of horsemen, each tens of thousands strong, met on the plains west of Voronezh. They fought for days, charging into each other, withdrawing to their encampments to recoup, then going out and doing it all over again. But the Reds got the better of it and held the field by November 15th. With their rear areas suddenly exposed, the entire volunteer army had to retreat south as fast as they could before they were cut off. In just weeks, the Whites had gone from threatening Moscow to fleeing back to their jumping-off points. And just like that, it was as if some spell of competency was lifted from the White forces. The Volunteer Army had been withdrawing towards Kharkov in good order, but the Red Cavalry took the city on December 11th, causing a second collapse as the Whites added an additional 300 miles to their retreat. It was also late in the year again, and typhus broke out and the logistics of supporting the field army, the wounded, and also the fleeing civilians was proving too much to endure. The Nikin was totally at a loss of what to do and opted to try and gather all his remaining Cossack cavalry and meet Budjani again. The Cossacks, though, were no longer in any shape to fight and were still trying to mass up when the Reds struck at them from the east of Kharkov in late December. It was cold and the odds were against them, so the Cossacks simply dished out and didn't come back. The Cossack commander had to sheepishly report to Danikin that the Whites no longer had cavalry. Danikin tried to send in Vrongel to take over the volunteer army as Maimeevsky was a broken man by this point, but even the best White commander could only watch the army fall apart. He wouldn't last long either. He was sacked as commander on January 2nd, 1920, when Danikin became fearful that he'd lead a coup. Vrongel would head into temporary exile in Istanbul on February 28th. Kiev changed hands once again on December 16th. Tsaritsyn fell on January 3rd. Rostov, Danikin's capital, and Novocherkassk, the Don Cossack capital, both fell on January 7th, 1920. The only respite came from the fact that the Reds had planned on crossing the Don River via its ice-covered surface. As it turned out, it was a little warm for that, and they had to organize a boat crossing, which took 10 days. When the attack launched on the 17th, it was met by a white army that had managed to recompose itself for the time being, and cut down the attackers, and even captured Bunyani's artillery support. The respite, though, was a temporary one only. The Bolsheviks did have a minor breakdown of nerves as they struggled to process not ending Danikin right then and there, but soon recomposed themselves. The forces were reorganized under the banner of the Caucasus Front, under the command of Mikhail Tukhachevsky. Tukhachevsky was only 26, but already developing a reputation. He had attended the military academy, but was captured early on in World War I in February 1915. He tried to escape his BOW camp and was transferred to a more secure prison, where he actually uh, shared a cell with Charles de Gaulle for a time. He had commanded the Southern Wing in the offensive against Kolchak the previous summer, and was now being tasked with an entire front of his own and he did not disappoint. He shuttled Bugliani's cavalry east of the Don, which meant they had to ride back west again, but this time over open ground and not across an only partially frozen river while being shot at. His men made contact on February 14th. They were met by a handful of mounted Cossacks that Danikin had scraped together over the past two months, and the horsemen again dueled, this time amidst negative 15 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. The weather was such that most of the Cossacks actually decided to sit the battle out, and the Reds turned the White flank. Danikin had, meanwhile, taken back Rostov on the 20th, but now had to retreat. His defeat coincided with the appearance of so-called Green Partisans, SRs, who had kept their heads down up until now, but had finally grown sick of the Whites. They launched a guerrilla war against Danikin as he retreated, which, believe me, was the last thing he needed at that point. There wasn't anything else to be done, though, except retreat. Denikin's forces fled to the port city of Novorossiysk on the Black Sea. The British were on hand to evacuate part of the army to the Crimea, but couldn't get everybody. 30,000 got shipped off, and 22,000 were captured. A group of 60,000, both soldier and civilian, continued south along the Black Sea coast and were finally rounded up in Sochi. Understandably, Dennegan's stint as leader was over, and he was forced to turn over command to a returned General Vrongel. Frangl's dominion consisted of the Crimea, and he knew he was picked to basically wind down the war. But his denouement will come in a future episode, as it was a little more dragged out than could have been expected, and there are still fronts to close out this episode as well. Speaking of which, in the far north, the Murmansk Front had remained both literally and metaphorically frozen over the winter of 1918-19. The combined Entente-White forces had reached Lake Onega, but took to winter quarters in the towns they had taken, which was entirely reasonable. Romansk itself was above the Arctic Circle, and the southern advance wasn't very far below either. It wasn't until early May 1919 that the advance was recommenced, and they kept advancing through June, but the pace was slowed by lack of troops, as some had to be sent over to reinforce Archangel when the ports opened. And speaking of that, over in Archangel, the Entente had a much rougher go of it over the winter. The Red Army had been aggressive in the area, and Trotsky took a personal role in overseeing the counterattacks. All through January, the scattered detachments of hundreds of Americans, French, British, and Canadians were subjected to relentless counterattacks that precluded any further advances. While the Red Army never broke through the Entente lines, there were numerous close calls and instances of troops being temporarily surrounded. The Entente commander on the scene, the British General Ironside, who was actually the same Ironside I mentioned back in episode 51, who later on in 1920 would help engineer the rise of Rezikon in Persia and the toppling of the Shah there. Ironside recognized the situation as perilous. His troops were completely demoralized and stuck in a fight they wanted no part in. His Russian contingent was wholly unreliable, and the port of Archangel was frozen over, so no help was coming soon. He considered training local Russian conscripts, but the results were underwhelming, to say the least. His Entente troops were undeniably better trained and equipped, which offset the superior red numbers, but they were still forced to pull back over the late winter and early spring of 1919. Red troops were relentless in their assaults, several times wading through waist-deep snowbanks while under heavy machine gun fire to get at the defenders. And their contingent of artillery was steadily improving as well, as Trotsky directed special reinforcements there. All in all, it was a really hard winter for the besieged, and their only relief was communications from back home assuring them that they were not forgotten and that popular opinion was swinging towards evacuation. And by mid-April, the Bolshevik winter offensive died down, and the port opened to replacements and supplies. The spring thaw, though, did not promise new commitments to the northern campaigns. The Entente forces had marched hundreds of miles south over some of the worst real estate on Earth, and still wound up basically in the middle of nowhere, not having taken anything of real importance. For the Bramansk force, Petrograd was still another 230 miles away by summer 1919, and I only bring that up because that was the closest destination that had any importance whatsoever. And there were no plans of taking that metropolis, which begged the question, just what the hell were they doing up there anyway? The original objective of stopping Finn adventurism in Karelia had long since been accomplished. And while there might have been some hope of linking up with the Archangel Force and then Kolchak's advance from the east, by the time the campaign season really got underway in the north, Kolchak was already in full retreat. Which was a problem because as the experience of the Archangel Force showed, they lacked the fighting power to break through by themselves to the eastern whites. This lack of direction was picked up on back in the Entente homelands, and the participating governments started questioning the ongoing commitments in the Russian north. Debates were had in Washington, London, and Paris through the winter of 1918-19, and the overwhelming consensus was to get out. For both the Murmansk and Archangel missions, the long advances became about establishing buffers to keep the Red Army at bay while the Entente made arrangements to evacuate. It couldn't come a moment too soon for the Archangel force, as by spring their troops had had enough. There started to be instances among all the Entente troops of men refusing to fight or even limited mutinies. Many, who were freshly deployed to Archangel after the port opened, refused to go out until assured that they were only going to be used to hold areas, not attack them, and the entire front was imperiled after several instances of the Whites launching sizable mutinies. A battalion of Red deserters who had been reorganized to fight for the Whites rose up and murdered several Russian and British officers, with a hundred men escaping back to Red Lines. Worse came on July 20th, when 3,000 white soldiers holding the city of Onega west of Archangel went over to the Bolsheviks and turned the city over to them. This was a critical blow, as the city was an important link to the Burmansk operation and was a key defensive position for the perimeter around Archangel. It was also bad because that regiment of whites was considered reliable and solid. They couldn't trust them. Who could they trust? And by that time, too, most of the Entente were completing their evacuations, except for Britain, who had opted to hang on and merely swap some troops out. The decision not to totally evacuate emboldened General Ironside, and he went back on the offensive. He was of the opinion that while long-term he was leaving, there wasn't a final date to be out for the British, and the white forces under his command would be left to fight on. He figured the proper thing to do would be to cripple the red forces in the area before winter to try and buy those whites some time. Also, it was designed to make sure the Bolsheviks couldn't give chase as they carried out another wave of evacuations, which was also planned to be mirrored over in Murmansk in September 1919 as small groups of British and Serbians fought local actions in scattered villages to drive the Reds away from their exit path. In both sectors, the white Russians were less than thrilled with their compatriots leaving the area, and while they cooperated in the August offensives to regain better defensive positions, they lacked the strength and wherewithal to hold out alone and figured their allies had abandoned them, which, yeah, that's about what happened. In one dramatic example, a Russian ace pilot opted to suicidally crash his plane rather than return it to the fleeing British. On September 20th, 1919, all operations were finally handed over to the Whites, and by the 27th, the British were out of Archangel. And by October 12th, the remaining British and Serbs in Murmansk had evacuated as well they left behind a northern Russian government and their dwindling contingent of white soldiers. Those left behind around Archangel fought on through the winter, but were crippled not just by their own inept leadership, but the sudden loss of food and supplies from the Entente. Like so often in the Civil War, there was no grand final battle, just a cold grind as another winter passed, this time from 1919 to 1920. By February 20th, the Reds entered Archangel, and the northern front was closed up. It had begun dubiously with the entente wanting to head off german influence in the region but morphed with astonishing speed into an anti-bolshevik campaign one that was doomed as soon as it began given the scant resources afforded the expedition troops and how much ground they had to cover to reach anywhere of real importance like so many other campaigns among the anti-bolsheviks the distances involved to actually land more than a glancing blow to red russia were simply too great these campaigns would leave a mark, though, as the Bolsheviks would long remember them and all the other expeditions on the fringes of their nation. One area that wasn't too distant from someplace important was the Northwest Front, our last little stop for 1919. General Yudenich's Northwest Army had been pushed out of Skov back at the end of August, but they were merely down, not out. In the autumn, he would make the final lunge for Petrograd from the Baltic. He had hoped to be joined with the Finnish army, But he answered to Kolchak, and even as his regime was collapsing at the end of summer 1919, the good admiral stubbornly refused to recognize Finnish independence. So the Finns looked at Udanich's request to fight on his behalf and said, nah, the Bolsheviks already said we could go. The Northwest Army thus had to march largely without allies, their Estonian hosts being quite busy with the German Free Corps operating out of Latvia, who were marching north at the time. Their one benefit was that by October 1919, the Red Army's command was looking everywhere besides the Baltic area. Troops were concentrated dealing with the Nikon's advance on Moscow, and the Northwest had been ignored. On September 26th, the region's best troops had been transferred out. And when the White attack commenced on October 12th, in nine days, they were within 20 miles of Petrograd. The invasion force was only 15,000 men, but there wasn't anything around to actually stop them. On the 17th, though, Trotsky entered Petrograd in his armored train and took command. The scene was a grim one. Zinoviev had been appointed as the party boss of the city and was in a state of nervous breakdown. But the war commissar pulled out all the stops. He recruited straight from the city's population, raising the troop strength facing the whites to 75,000 men. He surveyed the front lines on horseback and rallied the panicked troops. Meanwhile, the same thing that had happened to all the other white factions happened to Udnich's guys. They went too far, too fast, got exhausted, and ran out of supplies. Yep, the exact same thing happened once again. On October 21st, the Red Army counterattacked, and in three weeks, the whites were back in Estonia. Udnich resigned, the Northwest Army dissolved, and Estonia approached Lenin with making a final treaty to hash out their differences. This resulted in the Treaty of Tartu, which settled the borders between Estonia and Finland vis-a-vis Russia, and wound up the Baltic Front. And for the whites, that was mostly it. I'm not going to do my final summaries just yet, as I've kind of glanced over the red experience, and the war wasn't quite over just yet. But the big battles of Russians versus Russians were, and the world's first socialist state was close to securing itself. And I'm kind of long overdue on actually covering how that first socialist state operated in practice during its early years. In covering the war, you might have noticed that I haven't talked much about things like war communism or the Red Terror, the stuff that gets heavy play normally. Well, don't worry, I was just trying to give the oft-overlooked losers of the war some actual attention. But next week, we're going to start covering just what was going on in Red Russia while the fighting was taking place. That means covering the time frame for mid-1918 to early 1920 from a more social perspective instead of just a military one. So join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>